Imagine blowing through a million dollars, stealing double-digit funds from your wife's retirement account and facing criminal charges. Patrick Chester had no idea he would turn full on into a gambling addict when he bet and won $900 on that first college football game. Like that first taste of cocaine for a drug addict, Chester was hooked. These are dark days for most sports gambling addicts. Since online sports betting has become legalized, the ads assault every commercial break in a professional sports broadcast. It's a constant reminder to the 1% Americans and 0.6% of Canadians who cannot stop betting on sports. Chester hit his addiction for 15 years. He would finally seek the help he needed when he stole $9.50 from his five-year-old son. Today, Chester speaks on sports gambling and helps counsel others through this silent addiction. His client list includes the NFL Players Association, Rugby Players Association, English Football League, Major League Soccer, Chelsea FC, and the Professional Cricketers Association. Please welcome Patrick Chester to the show. Debbie, hey, great to be on with you. And thanks uh, again for, for the opportunity to join you today. And, and you know, I, I think what should be a, an enlightening conversation for many people who just really don't know what the dangers are when it comes to sports betting and gambling. And so hopefully you and I can shed a little light on that today. Yes, yes. And I have to ask, what type of work did you do when you began investing in gambling? Yeah, that's a great question, you know, because I was working as a general contractor. I was working for myself. And so I was taking on big projects. I, I grew up, I had a sports background, but eventually after college transitioned into a career working for myself as a contractor and accepting large sums of money from clients for projects, right? For $100,000 projects, $200,000 projects. And so I had access to money, you know, which did not help. <laughs> I can assure you of that. Yeah, I kind of wondered how you could afford to buy a gamble at the, at the beginning, right? So what was your anxiety like when you were trying to hide your addiction for all those years? It was brutal. It was really, those were dark days. You know, it didn't start out like that, right? It starts out innocently enough. And you mentioned it in your, in your open there where, you know, I won a $900 college football bet back in 2001. And that triggered something in my brain that I couldn't shut off for 15 years. So the anxiety wasn't there initially. It was excitement. But I crossed over right around the time I got married in 2006 is when I really crossed over to what I refer to as the dark side of gambling, where I didn't want my wife to know or friends to know or anybody to know what I was really doing and how much money I was betting. So it was around 2006 when I got married that the anxiety really started. And that lasted for another nine years until 2015. So was it just college football? Was it all sports or was it, did you have horse racing involved as well? Because that's big on gambling. Horse racing is huge. I, I did a little bit. I, I bet on the, the horses a little bit, but it wasn't, that really wasn't it for me. It was college football is what sucked me in. I, I started out, I started going to college football games when I was five years old and I loved it. I loved everything about it. And then when I 
figured out that I could actually bet on the games, I, I was hooked. And that's what I was focused primarily on college football. But then I, I progressed, right? That wasn't enough for me. I had to bet on everything. It's, it got to a point where I was betting on NFL games, basketball games, soccer matches in England that were going on in the middle of the night because I couldn't stop betting on, on it. And wow. it became all consumed with me. Wow. Well, you had to win a little bit to keep it going, I imagine. Yeah. And that's the tricky thing. You know, I always draw the comparison with a, an alcoholic and a drug addict, right? Compared to a gambling addict. You can see it physically on the alcoholic or the drug addict, whereas you can't see it physically on the gambling addict. And we do win occasionally. We don't lose every time. I mean, I had games where I won fifteen or twenty or thirty thousand dollars. Yeah, that would keep. But those were the exception, right? I was losing more than I won, and then I started to dig myself a hole. And my solution, the solution in my mind to get out of that hole, was to gamble more. You know, I'm a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand dollars in the hole. Well, I've just got to keep betting more and more and more to win that money back. So that that became my rationale, my thinking, and it becomes this game of chase. It's a bad cycle to get into. So what was your rock bottom? It wasn't when you were caught stealing your wife's pension money. What was rock bottom for you? Yeah. I mean, you would think there were many, so many things that happened to me along the way. I was charged with two counts of first degree theft. They ran a story on the news about $100,000 in stolen construction equipment. Oh my God. Uh, And then I was the one who stole that equipment to feed my gambling addiction, but none of that. And $28,000 I took secretly from my wife's retirement account without her knowledge. But again, none of that was rock bottom for me. Rock bottom for me was teen. I could no longer work for myself. The state had revoked my business license. I had exhausted all financial avenues, resources, friends. I had nothing left. And I took $9 and 50 cents from my five-year-old son's piggy bank. And I remember that was the day where I sat in my car and cried for hours because I couldn't, I, I just couldn't fathom the idea of doing that. What kind of father had I become, right? To, to do something like that. And, and that's when I thought, you know what? My only way out of this is suicide. My only way out of this is to end my life because I didn't have the courage to come out and tell my wife. I, I was so embarrassed and, and had so much shame that I couldn't see a way out, you know? So that, that was it. That was rock bottom for me. And that was late November of 2014. Well, you didn't do it, which is thank God for that. So what happened after that? You asked, that's when you asked for help? So no, I actually did not ask for help. It came to me in an interesting way. Okay. I mean, this was November of 2014. I actually had one more bet that I made after that. It was the 2015 Super Bowl where the Seahawks were playing the New England Patriots. I had a lot of money bet on that game and I lost to the Seahawks. I bet on the Seahawks and they lost that game in excruciating fashion. I don't know if you remember that or not. Yes, but, I do. <laughs> um, so we went down in there. We went down to Arizona for that game. My wife and her sister and her sister's husband, there were four of us. And I came home, we came home a couple of days later. And while we were out of town, my wife's father had discovered that I had a gambling problem. He had no idea of the scope or the magnitude or of all of the things I had done to, to, to feed that addiction. He found out that I had a problem. And so he 
got my wife together, my wife's sister and, and the rest of the family together, and they arranged an intervention for me mm. the very next day. So this would have been early February of 2015. And it's just like you see on TV, right? I, yeah. I, I brought into this strange building down these dark hallways and I go into a, a room and there's my f- entire family sitting there and some strange person who I've never met before who's the interventionist. And so it was presented to me that day that, hey, we know you have a problem. We know that there's some things going on. They had, again, had no idea of what I had done, really. But they said, here's an opportunity for you to go off and get help. You can take this or you can leave it. If you leave it, we're gone. We are gone forever. And I I actually viewed that as a good day. It was a great day. It was the turning point in my life because had they not presented me with that opportunity, I'm certain I wouldn't be here today because I did not have the courage to do it myself. And so to have that lifeline extended to me was, I'm forever grateful. That says a lot about your family. And did you know as soon as you walked in that room? Oh, <laughs> I did. I mean, I knew it. I knew it. I had a feeling because things the day before my wife had gone silent on me and things were not making sense. And I had a feeling that maybe they had discovered what was going on. So when I walked into that room, yeah, it hit me. Yeah, I knew exactly what was going on. And you know, there were a lot of tears that day, as you can imagine, with the family. And, and and you mentioned it says a lot about my family. It really does, because I had taken from them, right? And yeah. they had a lot. There was a lot of anger <laughs> from my family. And oh, that goodness. didn't go away that day. It, it took it took a long time to get past that as they discovered what I had really done. It took months and months for them to uncover everything. But it was a day that I'll never forget. And again, it was the day that my life turned around. And you paid the price. I can't even imagine what it would be like to stand in court and hear those words when you're sentenced to a jail term. But that's where you really found your courage to heal. It did. So it was really, I went off to treatment for 30 days, came back. And three weeks after I got home from treatment in, in late March, I had to go into court for my sentencing for theft charges. I had been charged with two counts of first degree theft. And I stood there in that courtroom and I listened to, when you go in for a sentencing, they have what are called victim impact statements. And that's where the victims of the defendant get up and they tell the courtroom and the judge just exactly what they think of the defendant. And it wasn't good. I had to listen to these clients, talk to the judge and tell them, tell the judge what I had done to them. And stood before the judge and and she looked at me and she said, the best thing for you is to go to jail today. And, you know, I can look back on that. And I have spent four months in jail and I don't know that jail is the answer for, for gambling addicts. I think there are other ways to, to, and programs and alternatives, but I did need that time. I needed time to decompress. I needed time to think about what I had done over the last 15 years, what I had done to my wife and son. Uh, because I was not ready to just go back into society after living a lie for so many years. You becoming it becomes ingrained in you. And I needed time to process. I needed time to think about how I was going to move forward. And so sitting in jail and staring at walls for four months kind of gave me that that time to where I walked out of that place in the middle of June of 2015. And I had over a million dollars in debt. I had a broken marriage. I had no friends left. But I had this weight off of my shoulders for the first time in 15 years. I, I refer to it as the monster of addiction. It was gone. I didn't have that anymore. So 
that was the greatest feeling I've had, I think, ever. So how do you navigate all those competing voices that you hear in your head that keep trying to lure you back to that dark side? How hard was it to get to that next chapter? The first couple of years were really hard. You know, as I mentioned, I was a huge college football fan and still am to this day. And so I remember going to my first college football game with my son that fall of 2015 and sitting there looking around and thinking to myself, this is dumb. Like who goes to, do people actually go to these games and not bet on them? Like I could not, I couldn't process. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was like, I needed that. I needed that yeah. adrenaline dopamine hit. I needed all of that. So that was a real process for me. I'm at the point now I'm eight years removed from that almost eight years. And I can watch a game and enjoy it for the game now and, and really get into it for the sake of the sport and not because I have to have money on it. But the first two or three years were tough. I, you know, I, and now I'm at a point where because of what I do, that is my therapy that keeps me grounded. I'm able to get in front of student athletes, treatment centers, patients. And, and when I can make an impact, when I, what my story, when it resonates with people and they come to me and say, Hey, my mom has a problem or my friend has a problem or I'm struggling with this. And I didn't know there were resources. That's my, that's my therapy. That's what keeps me engaged in my recovery. And that's what keeps me from crossing back over to the dark side. I don't know if I could have done it without this, right? I, I kind of need doing what I do now. It really helps me. So was there one particular moment where you knew you would be okay? Yeah. There was, it was, I was at a, a GA meeting, just like alcoholics have AA meetings and mm -hmm. drug addicts have NA. We have GA gamblers anonymous meetings. And it was about a little over a year, close to two years into my recovery. And I was at a meeting and, and, and as we do in those groups, we just go around and we talk, right? We just talk about our struggles. You're, in a, you're amongst a group of people that understand you because they're dealing with the same thing. And so I talked for maybe five or 10 minutes at one of those meetings and I noticed to the left of me, there was a, a young man, probably in his thirties and his father would look to be his father who was blind, couldn't see anything. All he could do was listen. And I remember thinking, I haven't seen them before, but I'd like to talk to him after the meeting and see what's, what's going on. So they approached me after the meeting of the father. He asked me if I could talk to his son because his son had just lost his wife due to his gambling problems. And he had no idea what to do, but he heard me talking and he thought I could help his son. Mm. And I didn't know I had this in me at the time, but I talked to his son for probably a good hour after that meeting. And the next day he checked himself into a treatment center, got himself some help and was able to, to rebuild his marriage. And he thanked me for, for sharing my story. So it was at that point where I thought, you know what, I can actually do this. I can make a difference in people's life and this will help not only help them, it'll help me, you know, it helps me too. So it was that point, I think, where I realized that I could actually do this. <laughs> wow. And of course, it seems like our culture seems to have all of a sudden embraced gambling. Well, there's always been gambling, but publicly, they weren't able to advertise sports bet before. So where now we see these ads continually assaulting us in the media airwaves, and they use celebrities and whatnot. But meanwhile, we have such a serious problem, like you have just beautifully described how to control this habit and how complicit is the media and these organizations that advertise 
in perpetuating this addiction? <laughs> well, they're, they're all complicit, right? I mean, <laughs> it's just, it's we threw legalized sports betting at our society and our younger generation with no education and no awareness. And it's celebrated in this country. Mm -hmm. So you, you can be watching an NFL game or a college football game and you see somebody like Kevin Hart doing a, a, a DraftKings advertisement and, and, and telling these kids, sign up for $5 and you get $200 in free bets, which is all complete nonsense, right? It's all just nonsense, but they don't know that. And so it's glorified. So they're all complicit. As much as I like some of these former athletes and quarterbacks like Peyton Manning and Drew Brees and some of these guys, they're involved with promoting this as well. And to me, that's just wrong. I, I'm not anti-gambling, but I am anti-gambling harm and I'm pro-education and awareness. Let's educate these people, the younger generation, instead of telling them how great it is, let's show them what the reality is. Let's tell them about the the 40-year-old mother who's sitting in a casino at two o'clock in the morning with her kids in the car because she can't stop gambling. Yeah. You know, that's what happens, but we don't want to talk about that. We just talk about how great it is and, and the Super Bowl comes around and we're gambling with our kids and let's educate them on this, just like we do with alcohol and drugs. Yeah, we've always had pools, sports gambling pools. Those have always been around, but it's kind of morphed into this other more dangerous Period. Yeah, we start with our kids at young ages, you know, even with fantasy sports. I mean, all, all of this stuff. And then they get older, they get into college in their 20s and their 30s. And many of them, most the majority can do it responsibly, just like alcohol or drugs. Most people can handle alcohol responsibly, but there is that small mm -hmm. per percentage where they're either prone to addiction, runs in their family, whatever, that can't. And, and we need to make them aware of the dangers of this. The way I refer to it is like in the U.S. anyway, the truck has left the station. We're just trying to catch up to it. You know, we threw this out in society with no with no foundation, with no education, nothing. And we're just expecting people to adjust and, and handle it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to let people know what can happen. And before they started assaulting us with these ads, it used to be, well, I don't know about the U.S., but what I remembered when we had the first NHL strike back in, I think it was 94, to kill the dead space in the airwaves on the sports channels, they started televising poker tournaments. And that never went away. They kept televising them even after the NHL came back. By the way, NHL was huge in Canada. <laughs> as big as the NFL is in uh, the States. Yeah, that's right. So when I worked in the NHL, there were teams, pro sports teams, that were using a lot of these poker tournaments as fundraisers, which is fine, except they would require that all their players be in attendance at these tournaments. And, I mean, I get it. You know, you, you want to bring more money into the tournaments to raise more money. However, there are a couple of those players that are that are addicts trying to get clean and explain what this would do to a person who's trying to get clean that are kind of like part of their job description is to attend one of these tournaments. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard, you know, just speaking from my perspective, I never wanted to put myself in any sort of environment that would trigger these thoughts, right? An alcoholic that's in, 
spent many years drinking isn't going to just go hang out in a bar or isn't going to go hang out at a Super Bowl party where everybody's drinking. They need to build their foundation and get comfortable and, and, and be strong in their recovery. So to be in an environment like that is triggering to a gambling addict for sure. It's the, the, the reason why I never go back. I never set foot in a casino or a sports book or anything like that. You know, not that I would gamble, but I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to risk it. I wouldn't want to have those, those thoughts come back, back into my head because I do have, I still get the thoughts of, of what a thrill it was to sit in a sports book and have money on a football game. Like I can't sit here and say that wasn't fun. It wasn't exciting because it was, but I know that I can't handle it. So I don't, I just, to be in those environments is really dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And it pained me to see like a couple of the players that I knew were struggling to, that they had to go to those tournaments and it was really bad. So what has to happen to the onslaught of these gambling ads? I know here in Canada, we're talking about uh, doing what they did with the cigarette companies and banning banning the uh, gambling ads. How close do you think we are to banning these gambling ads or will we? <laughs> yeah, I, I think we're a ways off, but I do know that we are making inroads there, you know, when it comes to at least in the U.S., we have FanDuel, DraftKings, BetMG, all these different online avenues and, and all these, you see these ads. And I think it's just a matter of bringing education along with it. And I don't know how we're going to do that. I don't know how we're going to tie that into to, to some of these, but I know that there, um, some of these operators are willing to do that and i think more and maybe just because they, they want to keep their license and they want to keep doing what they're doing but they need to know and and this is one of the things i do is i, I meet with operators and educate their staff on what the dangers are danger signs what things to look for and so i think if they know that and they seem receptive to that i think that'll go a long way in, in, in curtailing some of these ads and some of the the ways that they're trying to grip onto these college students and the younger generation. So a past guest mentioned that change is hard, messy in the middle, and rewarding at the end. How do you convince people addicted to gambling to see themselves and encourage them to change? Well, the yeah, the first thing is to talk to somebody. Like the, the, That's the hardest thing. Like I was afraid to talk to anybody about it because I was so ashamed of what I had been doing. Mm. But before you get to the point I got to, there were many junctures along the way where I could have said something to somebody. And what I've learned through this process, through my recovery, is that there is always somebody. There are resources that I didn't know about, but there are resources and people that you can talk to. If you're afraid to talk to a friend or family member, pick up the phone. There are numbers you can call. And maybe sometimes it's easier to talk to a complete stranger and tell them what you're struggling with because they can turn you over to some resources and point you in the right direction. So that that's the main thing is to talk about it. I've been approached by parents of young kids that are gambling and they're afraid. They don't know what to do. And so they've approached me and I've tried to help them and encourage them to just open the dialogue and talk about the struggles of gambling addiction and all of the things that we do to feed that. So that's the first step. And then if it gets bad enough, obviously seek treatment, seek therapy, which were huge for me. I couldn't have done this without that. So what do you want other people to say after they've attended one of your sessions? 
I want them to open their eyes. And, and this happens a lot. They hear things that they had never heard before. I, it's not necessarily what I want them to say. I just want them to, to walk away feeling like, wow, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what to look out for warning signs because again gambling addiction is this i call it the hidden addiction right because he's mm-hmm. we become professional liars and we deceive and we misdirect and all of this stuff we manipulate not because we want to or we're bad people but we're trying to feed our addiction so when people walk away from after they've listened to me talk i want them to think okay i have a friend or i have a family member that's doing some of these some of these warning signs are showing up Maybe those are things I can look for. And many of them, like I mentioned earlier, have family members or friends that struggle with gambling. And so to know that there are resources and there are ways to get help for them is a huge thing because a lot of people, when it comes to gambling, just don't, first of all, they don't think it's an addiction at all. Second of all, they don't realize that there are ways to seek help and get help for those that are struggling with it. And a lot of the times I refer to the the family and friends as the affected others when it comes to the gambling addict. They take the brunt of this a lot of the times. They're on the other end and all they want to do is help, but they don't know how. And their, their family member or friend is taking from them and lying to them and they just want to help. So that's the main thing, just to walk away and think, okay, I have more knowledge about this now than I did before. Gambling is, like you say, it's a silent thing and and because it's not visible and... Let's face it, financially, we treat people without money like crap and people on the lower economic scale. If gambling devastates you physically, I guess, because of the anxiety and mentally and financially and to the point of like you, we discussed earlier, is there hope that... This will be taken a little more seriously than it is now. For sure. And I think that's the direction we're heading. I do a lot of work with people over in the UK and I've been over there and I use them as a case sample for the US. Okay. They're a country of roughly 70 million. We're a country of 330 million. They've been betting on sports legally for much longer than we have over here. And they're a mess. They're seeing the the, the effects of it, the suicide rates. Yeah. Um, for gambling addiction are, are way higher than any other addiction. So that's a good case study for us over here. And so we're trying to get that message across because we know so much more about the effects of this now. Um, I think we're starting to make progress. I think people are starting to, to open their eyes and recognize, although it's, I, I still think it's going to take three or four or five years before we see the full effects of this. But people are starting to recognize that, okay, this is a real uh, a serious issue and can be deadly um, and is often deadly. Again, the mental health aspect of this is a whole other side of it. So I think we're getting the message out. It's just going to take some time. It's probably bigger than what the statistics are saying, right? So it says 1% and 0.6%. It's probably bigger than that, but who knows? Because if it's silent, how do you know? Nobody's going to come forward in a minute. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show to talk about something so personal, but helpful. Yeah, I appreciate it, Debbie. You know, it's never easy to talk about this stuff, but I made the decision a few years ago that if I'm able to help others, that in a way I can take this this horrible situation that I put my family through and myself through 
and turn it into a positive, you know? And so that's what I'm trying to do. And um, it seems to be working with the people I talk with. So thanks again for having me on. I appreciate it. You're very inspiring. Thank you.